Well, you have to go a little way way back when plastics were discovered and when plastics came into being as be-all and end-all of our uh, life, pretty much. Uh, I know we store a lot of things in plastics. At that time, plastics were mostly generated from certain chemicals that were polymerized, and uh, these polymeric molecules would not degrade a whole lot. So that's why some of the older plastics remain for a long time. We have done some preliminary experiments, which is going to be published soon. It's under review. So what I can tell you is what we know in general. We have taken some of the common plastic materials that we that are out there and exposed them to intense UV light and try to see how they would disperse themselves. And uh, they do become microplastics. Now, once it becomes hydrophilic, that's where uh, material can actually get into the environment and also get into the human system itself. Now, the transport of these materials into the environment, whether into the water stream, into the biota, and uh, also into the air, that is, that's the final, I mean, that's what our uh, aim is. That's, what, that's why I got into this uh, research in the first place. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius Podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going. And I love coffee. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Kalyat Balsaraj. He's the Charles and Hilda Roddy Distinguished Professor of Chemical Engineering at Louisiana State University. We're going to talk about uh, plastic waste in the environment and wastewater, probably you know, crossover into micro and nanoplastics as well. So, uh, Professor Balsaraj, thank you for coming. Yeah, I'm glad to. Glad to be able to share some of my research. Yeah, if you would, tell me about your research. What are you working on right now? Uh, you know, you know my research area is pretty much in working in the area of environmental transport and transformation of chemicals, mainly having to do with what happens when uh, some of the chemicals are released into either the air, water, soil, and all the environmental media in general. And uh, my current research is mostly on uh, 
understanding the behavior of uh, microplastics and how they are generated and what happens to it in the environment. Yeah, um, I've interviewed a number of scientists on microplastics. Do you know anyone in the field that's trying to model how fast various plastics break down? I know it's not a perfect environment since outside is so complicated, but is anyone in a lab trying to recreate at least some of the conditions under which plastic would degrade and cycling it fast and seeing how long it takes? Perhaps it's our group that has been doing that work of late, myself and Professor Bhuvnesh Bharati. I think you have interviewed him earlier. We have been yeah, doing I some... today, but about right. different stuff, but yeah. Yeah, but we have been doing just that, trying to understand how plastics that are generally released to the environment, how they transform into microplastics and uh, where they end up and what their consequences are. Yeah, because on mm. the one hand, I've heard people saying, oh, plastic bottles can ex- you know, last for thousands of years in the environment without breaking down. So I just picture a perfect plastic bottle sitting there. But now that I've been learning about microplastics, that's not the case. But I wonder how long does the transition really take and what does it look like? Well, you have to go a little way way back when plastics were discovered and when plastics came into being as be-all and end-all of our uh, life, pretty much. Uh, I know we store a lot of things in plastics. At that time, plastics were mostly generated from certain chemicals that were polymerized, and uh, these polymeric molecules were, would not degrade a whole lot. So that's why some of the older plastics remain for a long time. But over time, most of the chemical manufacturers have gone to uh, other methods of production where they have certain additives inserted into it, which makes the plastic not as long-lived as the earlier ones, but uh, generally do degrade under certain conditions such as irradiation or uh, sunlight-induced transformations. So most of the current plastics do have some of that characteristic, and that's why plastics that uh, end up in the environment generally do degrade over time and convert to or release microplastics from their uh, constituents. Yeah, I've heard that, um, you know, if you have a PET bottle, it's not just PET. There's like a witch's brew of thousands of plasticizers and all kinds of other additives to it. So is it the base material that is not degrading? It's the other materials in it, you know, the additives, or is the whole thing degrading? And can you tell? It's a combination of both. You know, the plastics, the plasticizers that are introduced into it actually do catalyze certain reactions uh, and thereby the original backbone of the plastics do degrade over time if uh, they're exposed to sunlight and UV radiation, which makes it a little bit more difficult to understand how they transform in the environment. But they do, yeah. I mean, the plasticizers do help in not only degrading the plastics, but also in maintaining its original intent as inert material. So what have you discovered about the true lifestyle plastics? What, you know, the various ones, how fast do they, do they degrade and what does this degradation life cycle look like? We have done some preliminary experiments, which is going to be published soon. It's under review. So what I can tell you is what we know in general, we have taken some of the common plastic materials that we, that are out there and exposed them to intense UV light and try to see how they would disperse themselves over time into the water as microplastics. It takes anywhere from several hours to many weeks or more sometimes in, in cases 
for some of the plastics that we have tested, but there are probably different types of plastics which have half-lives, which are quite variable. We don't know all of them because we haven't tested all of them. We have used a few just as test cases. I mean, I guess I'm picturing like soda bottles sitting in a tank of water, maybe with some sand in the water or turbidity. Mm-hmm. And, a, you know, you have a light source and the tank is sloshing around over and over and over and tumbling and stuff like that. And I don't know if that would be a good model to model the breakdown of some of these. But, um, you know, what what is your like uh, your layout look like? Like what, what kind of conditions is the plastic in and what does it look like and all that? So what we have done is we have taken some of the plastics put them, I mean, they do float on water, of course, and then we subject them to UV light, that is sunlight, and then look at how those particles actually disperse into the water, because they become denser, and they do disperse into the water over time when they become microplastics. So yeah, we have observed them in real life, in our laboratory environment. Ballpark, what is the, uh, how long does it take? And I know it depends on the material, but Ballpark, like what's the window of time it takes, you know, what you consider to be a significant amount of microplastics to be shed? Uh, I would say a couple of weeks, a few weeks, they will actually degrade and you will see some microplastics in the water. Oh, wow. Okay. What does the uh, original bottle look like, for instance? So the original plastic, does it look like it's leached anything or does it still look intact? Does it look ragged or in pieces or what does it look like? Yes, they do have different characteristics once they are exposed to sunlight, and you will see certainly a different type of image that you could observe from the in, starting from the initial to the final. How different that is, it depends on the plastic. I mean, you will see certain pitting or certain kinds of transformations and change in colors, actually, in, in some cases. So I don't know exactly how to give a, an overall characteristic of it, but we do see some changes. Why are there, um, if there's pitting, I guess that means there's preferential sites of degradation. Mm-hmm. Is that due to imperfections in the plastic molding itself? Or like, you know, if you look at the surface characteristics, can you tell where a plastic is going to wear first? Or is it at uh, certain uh, dimensional changes in the bottle, let's say? We can't say that. We cannot say that right now. I don't think we have gone to that extent of trying to figure out which point in the plastic or at at what location do these degradations occur. We can see general characteristics, but not very specific. Do you notice that the degradation is happening faster, let's say, near the cap or near where the plastic is bending at sharp angles or where it's pinched together or thicker or thinner? Do you see any of that? Well, uh, I think you are mistaken that we don't use actual bottles but we use pieces of the plastic, not the actual bottle itself. So oh. uh, so you can't, I can't tell you where on the bottle will these degradations occur. We are testing this, this concept that uh, macroplastics, that is macro material that you expose to sunlight will eventually release microplastics. And that's the, that's the key. Well, why not use an actual bottle? An actual bottle will be useless for us because we won't be able to characterize uh, the actual transformation. We would rather do it in a laboratory environment where a piece of the plastic is used, not the actual bottle. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, 
We need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. Yeah, but I mean, if you have a monolithic bottle, you have a, a much smaller amount of surface area than, let's say, a, a piece of plastic that you'd put into, you know, a lab scenario. And I was going to ask you, too, when, when stuff breaks off the plastic, how macro is it? And at that point, the surface area to volume ratio would be much higher. So I would think the degradation would massively accelerate once stuff flakes off, you know? You are probably right in that, but the intent is, I mean, nobody has ever shown really that the dispersibility of the microplastics will increase if you expose it to sunlight. And that is the one key aspect that we have been investigating. This is a a test case. What about um, once the plastic has started leaching, does it accelerate? Do the pits grow faster? Now it again has more surface area. Does the uh, release of microplastics accelerate over time? Not really. Not, we haven't seen that kind of behavior. We have seen a fairly exponential decay in the, the, I would say, fairly linear increase in the amount of microplastics that are generated. We have, oh, yeah, still in the process of characterizing the rates. That's weird. That, that would seem to suggest that there are uh, definitely site-specific areas where the degradation happens first. And once the materials at that microsite, I guess, deplete, then the degradation slows down because maybe now you don't have as many of those like juicy, you know, sites to, to degrade. That is right. That is probably correct because the backbone material, which are essentially polymeric materials, will probably not degrade that much. It may remain, it may take much longer to degrade those uh, backbones. So does that suggest that the backbone material is the slowest to degrade? And again, it's the additives. The other chemicals, the plasticizers, you know, et cetera, the stuff for color and all that, the weak points in the structure? Yes, that is correct. And we do have, you now what we do is we can characterize what type of functional materials are actually generated in the microplastics over time. And we do see oxidation, actually oxidized materials in the microplastics. So we do not know yet exactly how the overall degradation would occur, but we do know basic tenet of our work has been to show that the microplastics would eventually give rise to microplastics, and that's been shown. What's coming off is, I guess, along the boundaries of these added chemicals is where the weak points are. This is just my guess. And when they're coming off, a piece of the backbone is coming with them. So you get a microplastic maybe that has core backbone of the PET, whatever it is, and it still has these maybe additives on top of it. And then I guess over time, if that exterior coating wears away and you're just left with backbone, but in a very small piece, maybe the degradation stops there or slows dramatically. Uh, That is speculation right now because we don't have evidence to show all of that. We are still in the process of evaluating what the characteristics of these microplastics are with respect to vis-a-vis the original plastic. So you are pretty much speculating what would happen. And yeah, that's a scenario, but I don't know if I can tell you that that is exactly what's happened. Yeah, no, I understand. It's just, it's just pure speculation. You know, I'm armchair uh, microplastic science here, but. Um... <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> what, um, have you looked at the surface chemistry and the surface morphology before and after degradation and compare the two? And what do you see if so? 
Mostly what we see is, as I said, if you start with, with a macroplastic that is pretty much hydrophobic, that they do not disperse in the water, over time we see that most of that material that is that degrades uh, become hydrophilic over time. So they do just get into the water. And that's that's the transformation that we see from a hydrophobic, mainly hydrophobic plastic, microplastic to hydrophilic microplastics. Um, if you look at the surface of the microplastics that come off, do they have like a, their own biofilms on them? No, no, we're not. We're not seeing any biofilms because we don't deal with any bioorganisms in these in these cases or even uh, any kind of biofilms. We're using pretty much nascent uh, plastic material, so I don't think there is any biofilm formation that we have seen. Are you doing this just in like distilled water or what's the medium of dissolution? It's distilled water, yes. As degradation occurs, are you seeing like pH changes or um, various ions being formed that weren't there before? Like, have you looked at the water chemistry? I don't remember where what the student has done with respect to the water chemistry. We were mostly interested in the surface chemistry of these uh, plastics. So we do know that there is there are changes, and that's why it's becoming hydrophilic. What the characteristics of them are, what the pH of the solution is, I don't remember that the student has uh, done that. Mm. Well, you cannot really see a lot of changes in pH. I mean, that's, you know, you have to really release a lot of hydrogen ions to see a huge change in the pH of the water. I don't think that'll be a, that'll be discernible with the kind of solutions that we are using. I mean, you'll probably have to have a lot of microplastics formed in order to observe that. Well, have you tested, I I guess in natural waters, I don't know how much pH variation there is, but... um... Are you going to go back and try like slightly basic, slightly acidic and see if there's dramatic differences in the degradation? Yeah, that is our, I mean, we have only, as I said, we have been using distilled water. We haven't used natural water and the natural water pH, whether it's seawater or uh, lake water or uh, any other kinds of waters. So that is that is our overall aim. I mean, this project was uh, an initial test and essentially an NSF uh, grant that just was a two-year grant just demonstrating that the, the transformation from my, macro to microplastics and what happens to those and further evaluation will be in another project. And how much microplastic is generated maybe per um, cubic centimeter of plastic volume? Are you able to make that calculation at all? I don't think we have made that calculation yet. We are mostly interested in demonstrating that it is hydrophilic material and not you know, we haven't categorized how that, how much plastics are generated. And what about looking at the, uh, again, morphology profile of the microplastics? Are, do you get different sizes, different shapes, yeah. sharp edges? What does it look like? We do get different shapes and sizes, certainly. It is yet to be, you know, we have, we have yet to figure out wh- how we can characterize them. Yeah, and, and I guess it would be interesting to see, yeah, in the beginning of the degradation, I wonder if you get certain shapes, and then later on in the degradation, if the shapes change, where they further, again, get whittled down, you know, by the action of the water. And like, what's the initial size distribution? Are you getting micron pieces first and then sub-micron pieces later? And, you know, it'd be interesting to see all that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's our intent. How many different types of plastic have you guys tested so far? I believe we have used several different types of plastics that are existing. I don't remember exactly how many, but I know that there's been at least two or three different varieties of plastics that we have worked on. Are you, are you seeing big differences in the types of plastics, the degradation profiles? 
Yes, there are certain significant differences between different types of plastics, you know, uh, made out of different backbones. You obviously will see different degrees of hydrophilic materials that are being generated. Yeah, I've heard from doing um, laundry, you know, a lot of fibrous or fiber microplastics will come from there. Mm-hmm. But of the, of the plastics you're working with, like what are the, um, the microplastics look like? Are they just like spheroid or are they star-shaped or like what, what kind of shapes are you seeing? Uh, various different. I have to go back and figure out, you know, remember, I don't remember exactly what type of uh, shapes and sizes we are seeing, but uh, obviously we do see certain types of uh, fibrous materials are generally the ones that you will see first because mostly these uh, polymeric materials will generate those fibrous compounds. Now, is that all that happens? We, I don't know whether they will transform further if we are subjected to UV light and um, sunlight over time. We don't know. Yeah. Do, do a lot of plastics have like a micro-grain structure? Yeah, um, they do. They do. Okay. So I guess along these lines in between the grains is where the preferential wearing seems to occur. Is that right? Could be. Yes. You know, th- that all remain. I mean, again, I don't want to speculate on what happens because we haven't looked into it, uh, what transformations occur and how they occur and where it occurs. That is really a significantly longer undertaking because you it will require a lot more work. Hmm, okay. I mean, so what, what so far is jumping out at you based on the data you're getting? You know, what you can say, but any interesting things you can point out as to what you've observed so far? Yeah, the primary thing that I can tell you is that Materials that are that tend to be hydrophobic, that is plastics in general, over time do does become hydrophilic, and uh, they do become microplastics. Now, once it becomes hydrophilic, that's where uh, material can actually get into the environment and also get into the human system itself, because that's where uh, these materials will eventually end up in our gut system. You know that uh, there was a very interesting article in National Geographic not too long ago about finding microplastics in the human systems itself. I mean, certain organs in our body do have the ten- have tendency to accumulate these things over time. And that is really the hydrophilic material that is getting into our system. So human consumption, and you know, it's much like particulate material in the air, which mostly when it becomes micron size and submicron size, we do have, tend to imbibe them. And the same thing happens, plastics and microplastics as well, and nanoplastics in, in particular. So that, that's a fairly important conclusion, I think. How does it get into the biota in general? And, uh, you know, whether it is fish or... Uh, amphibious material, amphibians, or even how does these uh, these microplastics enter our system? Yeah, I would guess that, um, you know, it goes into the body and uh, if you eat it, the yeah. stomach acid probably, uh, you know, breaks it up and changes the active site structure and everything. And then, uh, again, it's speculation again, but yeah. I would think people that have a leaky gut are more likely to have this enter into their bloodstream and into their interstitial tissues and everywhere else. The people that don't, but also organs that uh, blood passes through. You know, I guess liver probably would be maybe a main candidate for the accumulation of this stuff, other organs, but uh, 
Do you know from the article like where they were observed preferentially in the body? I do remember that liver is one of the main organs where it is observed. Now, it it has these microplastics eventually has a, a different consequence as well. And that is they do behave much like endocrine disrupting chemicals. So they do have other public health effects, which some folks are actually uh, investigating that. And I know that there are several papers that I've seen where uh, the effects of microplastics, not in the humans, but at least in mice models have been uh, understood to show some very interesting characteristics once it enters the biota. Okay. What future questions are you looking to ask? What's come up recently that uh, now you want to investigate? Yeah, well, one of the reasons why I got into this is there was a paper in Nature about three or four years ago, which showed that uh, nanoplastics and microplastics are found in environments high up in the Alps where there is no evidence of ever being ever microplastics being ever used. And the pathway that they envisaged and actually demonstrated was uh, the air pathway. So much of the microplastics that tend to be generated in the water stream or on land tends to disperse in the air and reach these very remote locations, much like uh, DDT and other chemicals, which are non-volatile and not not very uh, conducive to transport, essentially does transport to these remote locations. So that was the that was where I we started to think about what happens to these plastics. Are they just getting transformed to micron-sized particles and then get transported? And so what we have done show, shown is that, yes, they do transform. Now, the transport of these materials into the environment, whether into the water stream, into the biota, and uh, also into the air, that is, that's the final, I mean, that's what our uh, aim is. That's, what, that's why I got into this uh, research in the first place. Hmm. Okay. Air transport oh. pathway is yet another important aspect which folks are beginning to understand. Well, in your test chambers, you know, I guess the plastics and distilled water, but are you seeing any aerosolization? You know, you're agitating the water and sampling the air. No, we haven't done any of that. That's still, that is a long way off. <laughs> really, we want to figure out what happens to them in the first place, and then we can think about aerosolization and all of that. Okay. Well, what other, um, I don't know, what other important aspects of this do you want to study? What are you trying to figure out in addition that you think will be very useful? Well, I think uh, if we can get some veterinary science folks or somebody who is interested in understanding the biota, biota influence, that's where we really want to tie our research with uh, certain mice models and other stuff to figure out, well, wh- where does this end up and in which organ does this end up and how does it reach there and what their consequences are. So. There's a larger component of this work, which uh, hopefully will take several years effort, but uh, that's where we are headed. Hmm. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, Professor, where, where can people find out more about your work? Where can they go? We are about to publish this article. It's actually being reviewed right now. And there was also a, a review article that about microplastics uh, that Bhuvanesh, uh, Professor Bharati had written Last year, I think. And that's where you could get some of this idea about colloidal transformations and hydrophobic, hydrophilic balance in microplastics. The most recent work, we are, it's still being, it's under review and hopefully it'll get published very soon. And uh, that's where you'll be able to get a lot more information on what we are doing. Very good. Well, Professor Valsarge, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. 
Absolutely. Be glad to. And hopefully, if you're ever going to put anything in uh, on your podcast, certainly like to see what you're putting together. Sure. All right. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.